0: You are listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this or they might turn out like us.
1: Hi, this is Edward October for OctoberPodVHS.com, here to tell you what people are saying about our true crime podcast. A thread store in Arizona says, Too much dribble and slang. These ladies obviously enjoy their own humor and sound high. Hey, at least they called you ladies. Benny from Idaho says, Your topics are so appealing, but a three-person pod is difficult enough to follow without banter? Um, our true crime podcast only has two people wait 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 wait. where's the other 100 five star reviews can somebody give me the five star reviews okay here we go much better luscious lee says stand up five stars you girls are funny af i especially love the me and mrs jones rendition you sneak into the recording cherry g 107 says i struggle finding a new podcast and so far i've been hooked to you guys podcasts keep up the good work thumbs up thumbs up smiley face Our true crime podcast, two girls, one story, and lots of bad renditions of songs you love. Available on your favorite podcatcher. Go binge it today.
2: Servus, I'm Johanna from Vienna.
0: And I'm Annie from Boston. Welcome, Hellions. Servus, what does servus
2: mean? Um, Well, it's a typical way of saying hi in Austria to friends.
0: Ah, okay. So it sounds like you're saying either
2: service or serve us. <laughs> well, it comes from the from the Latin word for servant, servus.
0: Yeah. So that was one of the funniest promotions I've heard in a while.
2: It's so funny. Like I was cleaning the house and I was listening to Obscura. So if you haven't listened to him yet, go and check him out because oh my god, he's amazing. It's it's a great podcast. So anyway, I was listening to Obscura and this promo comes on. I had to stop what I was doing and I replayed this promo. Honestly, three times. And then I immediately contacted Jen and Cam because I wanted to introduce them to you on our podcast. I know that if you're listening to us and, you know, not just hate listening to us, but if you actually enjoy us, then I know you can handle true crime with a side of funny. And that's exactly what you get at our true crime podcast. So please go check them out and tell them we sent you.
0: Yeah. And a big shout out to the uh, masochists out there that really hate us, but still listen to us every week. (laughs) Really love you. We are the Fresh Hell podcast. We are two women who have never met in person who get together with all of y'all once a week to talk about terrible, terrible things. So, hi!
2: So, Annie, do you want to tell our listeners what we're going to talk about today? Oh,
0: yeah, my pleasure. So, today we are talking about a really beautiful lady who we both find absolutely fascinating. Today we are going to be talking about Evelyn Nesbitt. And a little spoiler, she is neither a murderer nor will she get murdered. But that doesn't mean that no murders will take place.
2: Yeah, that's right. There will be a crime committed. Okay, so this week we are traveling back to the early 20th century, an era that was also referred to as Belle Epoque or the Edwardian Era.
0: So we are not in our beloved Victorian era anymore.
2: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. The end of the Victorian era came, as we know, with the death of Queen Victoria in 1901. And the Edwardian Era covers, of course, the short period from 1901 to 1910, when King Edward VII was on the British throne. Now, some argued that the Edwardian era lasted until the beginning of World War One, but this is
3: definitely up for debate. Oh, we don't really have time today, do we? To
2: debate? Ah, uh, no, we don't. We have so many other things really to talk do about today. So much.
0: Okay.
2: So after Queen Victoria died, her son Edward VII followed her on the throne, and before that, he held the title of Prince of Wales. So the title of the heir to the throne of the Commonwealth longer than anybody else before him. That was for 60 years to be exact. But today, he doesn't hold the record to that anymore because Prince Charles carries the title of Prince of Wales now for 67 years. That's
0: amazing, isn't it? So that mm-hmm. is Wales the country, not Wales, my favorite scene now. <laughs> Also, fun fact, also kind of awful, Queen Victoria blamed her son, uh, Bertie, for Albert's death, even though it really definitely wasn't his fault. And uh, she was just so stubborn that uh, she wouldn't die and leave him the throne.
3: Do you know why she blamed him? Yes. So he was a little bit
0: of, he was kind of a man whore. (laughs)
3: Yeah. And
0: uh, he was off gallivanting somewhere, doing something he shouldn't have been doing. And so I think, and this is all if I'm remembering right, Albert went after him to bring him back. And it was shortly after that, that Albert became more ill and died. But nobody, none of the physicians of the time think that one really had anything to do with the other. It was just sort of a coincidence. Coincidence. Yeah. Yeah okay but still awful right to be blamed for your you know it's of course it always reminds me of you know when you see in movies or something where it's like uh, or in game of thrones whatever it is where it's like the surviving parent blames the parent the child that killed the mother during childbirth like yeah
2: anyhow okay yeah Now back to our prince, Prince Edward. So he was heir for six decades and mostly excluded from all political decisions. He was bored, of course. So he spent most of his time traveling around and performing, you know, ceremonies and some other public duties. And you could say he had kind of a representative position during this time. But the rest of his days, he spent hanging out with his wealthy friends, intellectuals, artists, and he developed an interest in art and fashion. And as you said, he was quite a playboy or how you called him a man whore. (laughs) So he loved to travel to France because society there was, you know, a little bit open minded. Oh, yeah. And I think... That um, he also enjoyed the freedom, you know, doing what he pleased, far away from the watchful eye of his mother. Another fun fact about Edward, he had a special love chair custom made that seemed to have helped Dirty Birdie through providing, you know, grip and support. We will post a photo of this very interesting contraption in our Facebook group.
0: It's pretty great. So it's like if you had a chaise longe um <laughs> and it's really beautiful and gilded. Then you're like, you know what? Let's make this fucker waist high. And then let's go ahead and add some stirrups, like at the GYN office, but make them really close to the edge of the chaise, so that your knees are up at your throat like you're on the back <laughs> of a really small superbike. That's all brass too. and <laughs> add some spools for like traction. I don't know. And then there's like a platform underneath with like, also, it looks like the back end of those machine, not machines, those apparatus where they measure your foot, where they put your foot and they squeeze it together to see. So it's like one of those, but probably solid gold. Fuck if I know. And then it's on a platform and it's just, I mean... It's so good. It's pretty perfect.
2: I mean, I have to be honest. I don't fully get it. I understand the upper level, you know, yeah. But then there is this lower level directly under the first, and it's also fully upholstered. So I think it's meant for a third party, I guess. But you know, in what direction? I know. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Maybe, maybe if I turn the photo like this, yeah. yeah yeah no no i guess i'm lacking imagination i don't see it
0: (laughs) so i think the bottom bit is for him to stand on mostly but i found this hilarious article with a bunch of stick figures drawn onto it that all of you guys need to see just imagining like how how is this thing (laughs) used it's my favorite it really is beautifully upholstered though it's very i mean it's a classy sexy
3: yeah i wouldn't want to see it under a black light though oh no that would light up like a christmas tree
0: yeah, okay, sorry, that's enough about the sex chair. But it's a really nice sex chair, though. Seriously,
3: it's tasteful. He took the chair with him everywhere he traveled. Why wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, once you're used to it. Yeah, I, how could you not? <sighs> to get away from the sex chair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who'd want to get away from that sex chair? It was like nothing but fun. Sorry, sorry.
2: So as a king, he actually took a huge interest in foreign affairs, especially with France. Well... No surprise there. And his charm and humor made him, well, liked throughout all levels of society. So we can say that after the long reign of Queen Victoria, most of the time she was a widow. Edward opened up the British kingdom and modernized the very often stiff and dusty traditions. And he loosened the high standard of morality that was prevalent during his mother's reign. At times he actually had quite liberal views, for example, when he called the N-word a disgrace. And you remember back at those days, it was still absolutely common to use it. Oh yeah. Other times he was not so liberal, for example, when he refused to give the Order of the Garter to the Shah of Persia because he was a Muslim. All in all, we can say that King Edward VII was extremely beloved. He was the most popular British king since the 17th century. But I also have to say this episode is not about King Edward VII and it doesn't even take place in England. I just thought it's nice to get a bit of background information on the man who this era was named after.
0: Oh yeah, it's a great bit of historical info, that sex chair alone. I mean, come on. And it does help set the mood for the rest of this episode.
2: Uh, Yeah, our story does not take place in Great Britain, but across the Atlantic Ocean, in New York, to be
3: exact. So Annie, how was life in New York around that time? Well, as I remember it, the A in the late 1800s (laughs) early 1900s. falls
0: into what is called the quote gilded age. So that's the time period that was before the Edwardian era. Um, and it was a time of really rapid growth, railroad expansion, there was industrialization. And so a lot of workers were needed and unemployment was very low. Wages grew. And this was also a time when many immigrants from Europe arrived and many companies were founded and the mass production of goods started to become more and more common, which also made them more affordable. And there were a lot of families who made their fortune by only owning coal mines or railroad companies or building modern department stores, don't get me wrong, you still absolutely needed money in order to make a fortune. And while there were insanely wealthy people, there were also many, many poor people. But yeah, on average, people had more income than before and goods were cheaper than ever. I actually went to Flagler College in St. Augustine for my undergraduate in Florida, and it used to be a Gilded Age hotel that was built by railroad tycoon Henry Flagler, who also built the Cass and Monica Hotel where Paul and I were married. If you've never been to St. Augustine, I really can't recommend it enough. St. Augustine and Key West Florida are my two favorite places in Florida. In episode 24, Victorian Death Trip, we did talk a bit about the Victorian beauty standards and how some of the techniques they used were actually really dangerous. In the Edwardian era, cosmetics and beauty products became even more popular thanks to the industrialization and mass production, and so more and more women had access to these products. The perfect Edwardian woman had brown or brunette hair and very pale skin with rosy cheeks. Almost me, except I have more of a ghastly pallor. Anyway, so they used enamel face paint, which of course contained lead, or rice or pearl powder to appear even paler. And the eyes and eyebrows were especially important, burned matches were often used to darken the eyelids, and belladonna drops were used in the eyes to create dilated pupils, which was a feature connected to youth and beauty and health. Eyebrow pencils became insanely popular. All the beauty products could be bought in salons, but women were often ashamed to admit that they used creams or makeup in order to create the highly desired and youthful look. So most of the salons and shops would offer a back entrance where women could enter the shop without being seen. This is really like secret entrance era here, isn't it? Secret entrances were really in vogue at this time. Yeah, and of course corsets were still used and they were absolutely necessary to create a body shape that was deemed perfect in Edwardian time. It was pretty much a very extreme hourglass figure, S-shape, with a wide bust and hips and a tiny waist.
2: Well, I have to admit that the Edwardian beauty standard and aesthetic is one that I really love. I love the silhouette, I love the dresses, I love the porcelain skin, the hairdos. But when we are looking at the old photos from the time, we should Never forget that even back then the photos were highly retouched. Everybody who thinks that face tuning or you know shaping your your body and making a thinger is a modern invention, it absolutely isn't. I have an article I can link that shows all the tricks they used when modifying photos.
0: Yeah, you are absolutely right. And another thing that happened because of the popularity of beauty products, companies started to place ads in magazines and newspapers to promote their products. So these ads were often showcasing drawings of the ideal, perfect Edwardian woman in her hourglass shape. One artist in particular became very popular, and his name was Charles Dana Gibson, who was another famous base dater. He was from Roxbury, Massachusetts, which some would say includes the Mission Hill neighborhood that we discussed last week. So the woman and girls that he portrayed in his drawings were just the personification of the Edwardian beauty standard. They were tall with a perfect S-shaped body, flawless pale skin, and always dressed in the latest fashion and could be seen riding a bike, spending an afternoon at the beach, attending college, or flirting with a potential spouse. But of course, there was one thing the Gibson girl was not. She was not an advocate for the woman's right to vote. That would be the new woman who was much more threatening than the Gibson girls. But nonetheless, Charles Dana Gibson did show his women as an equal companion to men, especially compared to anything in the past, you know, and they were often seen as being sexually dominant and captivating men with their beauty. He showed them crushing men under their feet like bugs or looking at them under a magnifying glass. And men were often depicted as just complete morons who were just absolutely (laughs) enthralled by the beauty of these women. Uh, One really famous drawing shows a young man trying to plant a tree upside down just because the Gibson girl had demanded it. So it's pretty great, some of it. (laughs) And (laughs) these Gibson girls, they became so popular that even merchandise like mugs, ashtrays, tablecloths were all sold with their image.
2: I think all in all, we can say that this period was a time of insane wealth, but also devastating poverty. The cities grew at an unbelievable pace, and the nouveau riche wanted to show off their money, their power, and their influence through their new and lavish mansions in the cities and their summer houses that mostly resembled European palaces, like on Rhode Island or in Newport. Luxurious hotels and impressive department stores were built. Annie, we all know you are our expert for house porn. I'm sure you know the Breaker's Mansion. Or the Oheka Castle?
0: I've been to the Breakers many times. The Newport mansions are particularly stunning at Christmas. My Aunt Mary used to take my sister and I every year, which I'm just thinking I should start doing with some of my nieces and nephews. Yeah, the Newport mansions are beautiful, and Newport is a really charming town. I have not done the castle yet. I think it's a hotel now, and I think when you visit, we need to go stay there.
2: We have so many things on our list.
0: (laughs) It's such a long list.
2: By the way, list, we have a list with all those impressive mentions from that era, and we will also post it to our Facebook group, where, as always, you will find all the sources to our episodes. Because all these estates were built and all the wealthy families in the United States tried to outdo each other, architects did rise to a sudden stardom. They were like really pop stars of their time. It's weird to say that. Yeah. Yep. One of these architects, one of the star architects, was a man named Stanford White. Now, Stanford White was born in New York City on November 9th, 1853.
3: So he's a Scorpio. I just love that you included that he's a Scorpio. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a random fact, but I had to put it in there.
2: <laughs> I love it.
3: I love it. Uh, So he was
2: a Scorpio. (laughs) His father, the journalist and literary critic Richard Grant White, was, let's call him a dandy, with basically no money. But he did know a lot of people and he did have connections to very important people. And I guess that's the reason why Stanford, who had absolutely no formal education in architecture, was able to start his career at the age of 18, As the personal assistant of Henry Hobson Richardson, who at that time was considered to be the greatest American architect.
0: Yes. So Henry Hobson Richardson actually designed the Trinity Church in Boston, which is beautiful. I sang there once years and years ago with the choir. And he also designed a lot of Massachusetts libraries, uh, also the Payne estate. I could go on and on. He's incredibly prolific. And he has his own architectural style named after him, which is the Richardson Romanesque. I mean, can you imagine this boy who practically knows nothing about architecture having a chance to work with this architectural icon?
2: Right. I mean, it's so impressive. But I guess that Stanford worked really hard and he was eager to learn the trade. And he stayed with Hobson Richardson for six years, apparently, as I right until the death of the famous architect who, by the way, died at the ripe age of 47 from a kidney disease. Victorian era. There you have it. I think, did he die of Bright's disease? Well, they they think so. I think it's not completely verified, but they think it was, yeah. Okay. After his mentor died, Stanford traveled to Europe, and he returned one and a half years later. And then he founded the collective architecture firm McKim, Mead, and White. Five years later, in 1884, Stanford married Bessie Springs Smith, who came from a very prominent family. Her ancestors were early settlers in the area of Long Island, so you can see that Stanford married into a very influential family. They even have a town named after them, Smithtown in New York. So Stanford and Bessie purchased their home, it was a small house called. Box Hill estate in St. James. And apparently in later years, Stanford expressed immense regret over not having torn down the old house and, you know, starting from scratch. But what they did is they did build several additions to the old house. And of course, Stanford all designed the additions himself. In... 1885, their first child is born, but the infant dies soon after. Finally, in 1887, their son, Lawrence Grant White, is born, and he too would later go on to become a very acclaimed architect. Now, let's leave Stanford White for a moment and talk about the other person who is important here, the person actually who this episode is titled after, Evelyn Nesbitt.
0: Yes. So, Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was born on Christmas Day, so December 25th, either 1884 or maybe 1885. Or it's possible it was even some other year. We're really not sure and we'll explain in a minute. But she was born in a little village near Pittsburgh called Tarentum, Pennsylvania. Her parents were Winfield Scott Nesbitt. He was an attorney and her mother was Evelyn Florence McKenzie. Now you might wonder, as we mentioned before, why we don't know exactly when she was born. The local records were unfortunately destroyed by a fire. And then Evelyn's mother was known to have added uh, years to her daughter's age in order to avoid getting into legal problems because of child labor laws. In any case, two years after Evelyn was born, her brother Howard was born. Even as a baby, she was described to be very pretty with the face of a cherub. She was said to be very shy and quiet as a child, but with a really remarkable voice. Her voice was so lovely that at the age of five, she had her first public appearance, singing at a memorial service in the Methodist Church. Her sweet voice could be heard singing a song, I don't know, entitled, We Are Going Down The valley, one by one, and with her song, she moved most of the audience to tears. I mean, not to bash a five year old's performance at a funeral, but it was a funeral. I'm not bitter. It's fine. Evelyn had, uh, she did have a really especially close relationship with her father. He supported not only her dancing and singing lessons, but he also really encouraged her to develop her own intellectual interests. He set up a library for her and he would often choose books for her to read, but he didn't just give her fairy tales and other stories that were deemed appropriate for little girls, but he also gave her books that were considered to be only of interest to boys. He sounds like my dad. So it was an absolute shock for Evelyn when... When her father died suddenly at the age of 40 when she was around 10 or 11 years old. She was just absolutely devastated. This was also very bad news for another reason. Winfield had left his family with almost no money but plenty of debt. They even lost their home, as it was auctioned off to pay part of their debts. Evelyn's mother was unable to find work, and for some time, the family of three only survived through the help of family and friends. They moved from one boarding house to another, always just renting a tiny room. To ease the financial burden, Howard would often be sent to stay with relatives. Finally, Mrs. Nesbit could borrow a larger sum of money, and she rented a house where she started her own boarding house. But due to her character, she had a really hard time collecting rents from her tenants, so it came as no surprise that this business failed pretty quickly. So soon after her boarding house failed, Mrs. Nesbitt moved to Philadelphia where she found a job as a sales clerk at the fabric counter of the Wanamaker department store. Makers was one of the first big department stores in the United States, and it was especially famous for having the world's largest organ, and that was located in their grand court. They also started things like public Christmas caroling in their stores, or sending their employees to Europe every year to learn about the latest trends. So it was definitely an exciting place to work. It sounds pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I would love to be sent to Europe by my, the Gap, right? The Gap never sent me to Europe to learn about the coming trends. So yeah, so they're sending people all the time, but that's probably also why they went bankrupt in the 1980s, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like everyone went to Europe every year Shockingly, Wanamaker's Went bankrupt in the 1980s So nowadays their former flagship store In Philadelphia, there's a Macy's there now But the organ is still there And once a year, the Wanamaker's Organ Day is held with a free recital That usually lasts the whole day Now I want to go there Alright, so Mrs. Nesbitt calls For her children, because both of her kids At that time I think were living with family friends Mm -hmm. Her kids were There was a lot of her kids in essentially in foster care, right? Being taken care of by friends and relatives and then they'd be back with her and then they'd be gone again and then they'd be back with her. So both of these kids had a lot of upheaval in their lives. So yeah, so once again, she calls for them to come and live with her in Philadelphia and both Evelyn and Howard also became employees of Wanamakers. So that meant that 14-year-old Evelyn and her 12-year-old brother
3: were now working
0: 12 hours a day, six days a week. That sounds great.
3: We don't even know if Evelyn was really 14 years old. No, that's true. You're right. You're very right. She could have been like 12. Yeah. Yeah. It's upsetting when you think about it. So,
0: Mm. well, everything was about to change for this little family.
3: Yep, that's right.
2: Because it was around that time that a woman with the name of Mrs. Dara, and she was a portrait painter and a miniature artist, she encountered the teenage Evelyn and was absolutely fascinated by her extraordinary beauty. And she decided to paint her portrait and i have to say rightfully so because this girl she was absolutely stunning we will post photos of course and there are many photos of her and she had everything going for her no like her face was exactly
3: what was considered the height of beauty in this period yeah she's stunning yeah really it's a ridiculously beautiful creature yeah
2: <laughs> mrs nesbitt was okay with her daughter posing for the painter because she was a woman now interesting enough that was something that didn't matter to her any longer Later on. I mean,
0: isn't it always shocking how morals just slide a little bit when money is involved?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Darrow's portrait was of course not the last time that Evelyn was asked to model for an artist. Evelyn was introduced to other artists in the area and soon became one of their favorite models. Evelyn later remembered in her autobiography... Quote, when I saw I could earn more money posing as an artist's model than I could at Wanamaker's, I gave my mother no peace until she permitted me
3: to pose for a livelihood. End quote.
2: And I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't want to work less for more money?
3: Yeah, that's a pretty easy decision, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I would say so. So, of course, Evelyn started to work as a model regularly. But in 1900, Mrs. Nesbitt decided to relocate to New York City to find work as a seamstress. That was something she actually tried to do in Philadelphia as well as in Pittsburgh before, but she couldn't find a position as a seamstress. And in New York City, it proved to be even harder to find employment. Nevertheless, she pretty soon did send for her children once again to come live with her in a very small single-room apartment in Manhattan. Now, the group of artists that had taken a liking to Evelyn, they gave her letters of recommendation to help her boost her modeling career in New York. Interestingly enough, Evelyn herself refused to make use of the letters and the helpful contacts, but Mrs. Nesbitt, in urgent need of money and left once more without any income, used the recommendations and contacted James Carroll Beckwith, who is a very famous American landscape portrait and genre painter and whose most important patron was nobody less than John jacob esther himself who later died on the titanic by the way and i absolutely
3: love how all these people and uh, historical events are intertwined i do too i'm also mildly obsessed with all things titanic Mm -hmm. so okay
0: so this painter carol beckwith he seemed to develop some protective paternal feelings for young evelyn and he himself provided her with letters of introduction to reputable artists like herbert morgan and frederick
3: s church and you know i really think that he really had just protective feelings of her. I agree. Because there was a lot of hinky in her life, but I don't think he was one of them. Yeah, agreed.
0: So, unfortunately, the role of manager fell on Mrs. Nesbitt, who had no idea of how to take care of her daughter's career. Like, none. <laughs> so, in a later interview, she claimed that she never allowed Evelyn to pose in the nude, which is simply not true, mm-hmm. as there are... Yeah, there's there's plenty of artwork out there from 1901 that show a 16-year-old Evelyn almost completely nude. It's tasteful nude, but it's she naked. So, I mean, maybe she meant she didn't allow her to pose completely nude, but it's like yeah, it's, she naked.
3: Mm.
2: <laughs> and maybe 14-year-old Evelyn. I just always want to, you right. know,
3: we don't know yes. how old that girl was. No, we don't.
0: No. Too young is the answer. But she didn't only pose for painters pretty soon. Photographers hired Evelyn to model for them. Among the most famous are Rudolf Eichmeier and Otto Sarney. Evelyn's face could be seen in Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, and of course, the Cosmopolitan. And her beauty was used to sell toothpaste, face cream, and lots and lots of other things. But that's not
2: all. We always think it's it's modern, you know, the teenage girls are used to sell us
3: like high fashion and expensive jewelry, but it's not. It's always been like that.
2: Always.
0: Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, but that's
0: not all that she was selling. So you remember our friend, Charles Dana Gibson, the artist who created the famous Gibson girls. Of course, he saw Evelyn's portraits and he too used her as a model for one of his most famous drawings. It's titled, quote, woman, colon. The Eternal Question. It shows Evelyn in profile and her hair is sort of cascading down her shoulders and forming the shape of a question mark. (laughs) We'll post a picture. You'll know it when you see it. But yeah, pretty soon, Evelyn's income from modeling was more than she, her mother, and her brother had earned combined at Wanamaker's in Philadelphia. Supposedly, she earned $10 for a full day of modeling, which would have been about $300 today. But still, due to the high cost of living, the family was struggling financially. Pretty soon, Evelyn got tired of posing in uncomfortable positions for hours with no end. And luckily, her beauty and success had earned her the attention of some theater producers. So, Mrs. Nesbitt, which, anyway, she's not happy about her daughter's wishes to become a theater actress. And I'm just like, but why? You're already letting her pose naked for... Pretty much anyone who will pay, but Chorus Girl is a step too far. <laughs> and listen, though, I get it. She's obviously lived a life in poverty with her kids not with her half the time. I mean, she's really gone through a lot. So I, it's not that I don't get it, but like, still, come on. She also changed her mind when she heard that some actresses and chorus girls ended up marrying millionaires. So then. Then it was okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, come on, Mama. I'm torn on Mama Nesbit, you know, because it's like mistakes were made.
2: I'm not a huge fan of her.
0: No, I'm always like this, very optimistic and forgiving. And, you know, everybody was just doing the best they could at the time. <sighs> and yeah, anyway, Evelyn's first role was as a member of the chorus line for the very popular and long-running musical *Floradora* on Broadway.
2: Yeah, and it was at that time that the 16 or maybe 14-year-old Evelyn... Was she
3: 10? <laughs> <I can> say.
0: <laughs> Who knows? She, Honest to God, what they did to this girl. It's so upsetting. Yeah. All right, sorry. Let's get into the bad stuff.
2: The really bad stuff. Yeah, now it starts to get really... Mm. So the, the 16 or or maybe 14 or maybe even younger, Evelyn, she met the 46-year-old Stanford White. And the two were introduced by one of Evelyn's colleagues, Edna Goodrich. And Stanford, even though he was married, was known in New York as a womanizer who loved the company of much younger girls. And I find that thought alone
3: so problematic. Like, I know different times. Ugh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was still a bit problematic then, too. He's gross.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, anyway, the two meet, and apparently his red hair and the huge red mustache he was sporting were not quite as impressive <laughs> as he thought, because Evelyn was heard saying that his height
3: was appalling and that he seemed terribly old. Okay, in his defense, though, that mustache? That it's. <laughs> his, his mustache uh... is
2: pretty cool. It's really cool.
3: But it's not fair of her to say his height was appalling. Well, he was I mean, apparently he was really tall. Oh, he was too tall. Yeah. I always thought it meant that he was too short. No, no, he was too tall, I think.
2: Because I read that he was a very tall guy.
0: So his height was appalling. I thought she was being mean to him because he was short. No, I think like... he was
2: very tall and she was just too petite.
0: She was tiny. Yeah. Okay,
3: fair enough. I think. Yeah.
2: Whatever. Stanford White didn't give up. And he invited Edna and Evelyn for lunch to his apartment. Yeah, that's right. While Bessie White and their son Lawrence lived in Box Hill out in the country and played little to no role in Stanford's social life in New York, the very famous star architect owned a huge multi-leveled apartment on West 24th Street, uh, right above a toy store. And the entrance to the apartment was next to the store's back entrance. In a back alley.
3: Sneaky. See, so sneaky! It's sneaky time.
2: I also read that he could open the the entrance electronically. Oh,
3: mm-hmm. he had like a evil switch. Yeah, like, he, oh, he, he buzzed them in. I want that.
0: I want a secret passage with an evil switch and some cadaver dogs. Please. All
3: right. My list is growing. So Evelyn and Edna go to
2: Stanford's apartment, and I assume it might not have been the first time there for Edna. They get into the apartment, and it's it's an impressive apartment. Like, he has expensive taste. And Evelyn is immediately impressed by the luxurious home. So there's, like, fine art on the wall and expensive carved furniture that decorates the room. There's heavy red velvet draperies that are covering the windows to keep the afternoon sun out. And, you know, the lunch is delivered by Delmonicos, the, the original Delmonicos, that is, you know back then one of the best places in New York City and I think possibly the whole country if you wanted to treat yourself with some fine dining. During lunch Evelyn was allowed to have one glass of champagne. However after lunch the three of them they woke up two flights of stairs into a green room where a red velvet swing hung suspended from the ceiling and the ropes that held the swing entwined with ivy. Now picture this please practically a bachelor apartment with a secretive back alley entrance and he has a room pretty much
3: dedicated to showcase a giant swing. I mean... It's a sex swing, right? I mean, nobody ever comes out and says it's a sex swing. It's like a kinky chaise
0: lounge, but this swing, it was a kinky swing, right?
2: Thank you, yes. I mean, honestly, are we
3: supposed to believe that he just like to push teenage girls on the swing to entertain them? I mean... I mean, that's almost creepier on its own, right? It's like, eww. All right, so let's
0: see what happens next. So Evelyn, she's very amused by the swing, and who wouldn't be? And she's got no blacklight handy. Stanford starts pushing her higher and higher, and then Edna grabs a Chinese paper parasol, like those things that they skewer your fruit with in a good umbrella cocktail, but like full size. Holds it up, (laughs) and that way Evelyn can kick at the paper parasol with her feet every time she swings forward until she's just completely shredded what was once an enormous drink parasol. But anyway, according to Evelyn's memoirs, nothing improper took place that afternoon. So wasteful, though, isn't it's it? It's horrible. I mean, like,
3: and, and it's like young girl hijinks. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, would you have been entertained by kicking a parasol at age 14 to 16? I think there was something in that champagne. I think it
0: wasn't one glass of champagne. Or if it was, it wasn't. Just champagne. Yeah, or she
2: wasn't used to it, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe. But one glass of champagne? Yeah, hey, I I cannot
2: have a half glass of champagne because I'm allergic.
0: Oh, really? Oh,
2: I'll drink
0: your
3: share. (laughs) You can have it. I will, I'll take it.
0: So, yeah, that swing uh, became really famous in the movie, though. The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, which you've probably seen. Yes. Yeah, so Evelyn is played by Joan Collins and Stanford White is played by Ray Milland. Yeah, so it's from 1955.
2: I do love Ray Milland in The Lost Weekend. I think that's one of my favorite movies. So there you go. Here are two more movie recommendations for our Hellions out there.
0: You know, I don't think I've seen either of them yet. You should. I will.
2: The the, the swing movie is... It's not good, but it's interesting because it's about
3: (laughs) Evelyn Nesbitt, but uh, it's, it's mediocre. It's like, I mean, Joan Collins is in it. So for her alone, I'd watch it. Yeah, of
2: course. But it's like, as far as I haven't seen it in a while, but I think it's more like they portrayed the whole Stanford white Evelyn Nesbitt as kind of romantic and uh, uh, I was going
0: to say, is it a love story? mm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, that's a problem. All right so Stanford who is said to be very kind and charming and generous he moves evelyn her mother and the brother to a suite at the wellington hotel Mrs. Nesbitt was very impressed by Stanford White, no surprise there, and apparently thought that he only had a paternal interest for her children. So, he did seem to have a paternal interest in her son Howard, and he arranged for Howard to attend the Chester Military Academy, which is near Philadelphia, and Stanford managed to gain Mrs. Nesbitt's trust. I mean... Ah, oh, come on yeah i know i know so that's what she said later on she said that he had gained her trust and convinced her to take a trip to pittsburgh in order to visit some friends and she wouldn't need to be anxious about leaving her precious teenage daughter in the big city unsupervised because of course he himself would watch the girl i know i think we're on the same page <sighs> here God. So, Mrs. Nesbitt goes to visit friends in Pittsburgh, and a couple of nights later, Stanford invites Evelyn over to his apartment. They are dining, drinking champagne, like all middle-aged male chaperones do when they are watching Teenage (laughs) Girls. Yeah, normal. Please come over for a seven-course meal and a bottle of champagne. (laughs) What else are you going to do on a Tuesday night? Come on. So, he then takes her on a tour of the apartment and leads her into the mirror room, which is a 10-by-10-foot room entirely covered in mirrors with a green velvet sofa in it
3: that actually sounds nice yeah but the whole apartment was just like for (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) it was a fuck palace
0: oh so bad so uh yeah so it's a 10 by 10 foot room entirely covered in mirrors with a green velvet sofa on it again no black lights the two drink more champagne and Evelyn changes into a more comfortable attire, a yellow silk kimono. Who does that? Like have you ever in real life been like let me just put on something more comfortable?
3: If I say I sleep into something more comfortable, I mean uh, I mean like pajamas, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. If I say I'm going to go slip into something more comfortable, I'm
0: legit coming back out of the bedroom with my wolf phannas on. I'm not putting on a yellow kimono with nothing on underneath it. So I don't know. This guy's living the dream. Alright, so anyway. See, so yeah, they drink more champagne and Evelyn changes into something more comfortable. A yellow silk kimono. Evelyn later claimed that this is the last memory she has of that night. Soon after, she loses consciousness. When she wakes up, she finds herself naked in bed with Stanford White, who was also naked, and then she sees blood on the sheets.
2: This is so infuriating.
0: Yeah, incredibly upsetting. And it gets worse, because despite what he had done to her that night, Evelyn became Stanford's lover for several months, and she actually only ended the relationship when she realized that Stanford had kept on seeing other girls as well as her behind his wife's back, and that he had kept track of them all in a little black book.
2: Yeah, and I also read, yeah, he got boring for her or something. I, I honestly think she
3: just didn't really want to be with him. Like, no. seriously. I think this, that Evelyn had no sense of, she followed orders
0: very well. Yeah. She was very yeah. suggestive. She did what people expected of her and what people wanted. She was a people pleaser, but to like the be beyond, you know, I mean, because she never stood up for herself ever. It's yeah, plus sad.
2: W- what were her role models' relationship was. Exactly. Like, yeah,
0: that's it. It's just, it's just, it's so sad. Her dad would be so bummed that all of this Mm. happened.
2: So Evelyn kept playing in theater productions, but she was no longer a member of the chorus line because she had earned the position of a featured player. And that's how she met John Barrymore. Yes, that John Barrymore, member of the famous Barrymore acting family and the grandfather of Drew Barrymore, who starred in many movies, for example, and his
3: favorite movie of all time, The Beloved E.T. Oh my God, it's the worst movie ever. I like the E.T. ride at Universal, but E.T. the film, it's the
0: worst. It is scary for the first three quarters and then really sad in the end. Yeah, it is. I hate it. I hate E.T., but I do love very more. And, uh, oh yeah, John Barrymore's former home, total house-born.
2: Okay, so what happened is that John Barrymore, he went to see the play The Wild Rose at least a dozen times because he was so smitten by Evelyn, who starred in it. And the two of them had met at a party thrown by Stanford White, who was a friend of John Barrymore's sister, Ethel Barrymore. And soon after Evelyn's relationship with Stanford had ended, or almost ended, or like she grew bored of him, Romance blossomed between John and Evelyn, and I do think the two were very much in love with each other. Like, John, he was very close to Evelyn's age. He was 21, and he was witty and charming. Unfortunately, he was also a little bit irresponsible with his family money at the time, and... That was back in the days when he hadn't decided that he wanted to become an actor like his parents, but rather he wanted to work uh, as an artist and illustrator. So his income was like non-existent. And of course, Mrs. Nesbitt and Stanford White, why the fuck this is any of his business, is beyond me, I think, because he still paid for her tuition or something like that. Still, both of them deemed John Barrymore unsuitable for Evelyn and Stanford even came up with a plan to separate the couple by arranging her to be enrolled in a boarding school in New Jersey. This boarding school by the way was administered by Matilda DeMille, yes, mother of film director Cecil B. DeMille so wow. mm-hmm. it's like everybody knows everybody like six degrees of separation or something yes. like this no, yeah.
0: yes it, this whole crowd is very it's like the og brat pack right mm-hmm. they all everybody knew everybody
2: john barrymore still did ask evelyn to become his wife but she turned down his proposal i think she did because her mother disapproved of it honestly as you said i think she was a pleaser and her mother said no and she said no i think she would have wanted to to be with him and i I always feel so bad when I read about this, especially when you know what happened to her later on.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think her life maybe would have been very, very different if she had been able to marry him. She was just really just used and manipulated by almost all the people that she should have been able to trust, right? It's just it's a bummer. It's it's all bad. Alright, which leads us to the next important character in today's story, Harry Kendall Thaw. <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> He was the son of a railroad and coal mining baron from Pittsburgh, and therefore the heir to a multi-million dollar fortune. Harry Kendall Thaw was born February 12th, 1871, and he was the son of William Thaw Sr. and his second wife, Mary Thibbet Thaw, and I read in total that William Thaw Sr. fathered 11 children from two marriages. Harry was, let's let's just say he was a rather difficult child. He suffered from insomnia, fits of rage, coherent babbling, <laughs> and one of his favorite things to do was throwing heavy household objects at the family's servants, because anytime he saw somebody suffering or in pain, it really made him laugh. He sounds like fun. Lovely, yeah. Mm -hmm. His teachers described him as both unintelligent and a troublemaker, and he would bounce from one prestigious private school to another, uh, never doing well. But of course, he was the son of William Thaw Sr. And so he was granted access to the University of Pittsburgh, and later he even transferred to Harvard College. Afterward, he bragged that he had only studied poker at Harvard, and he used to light cigars with $100 bills.
2: That's so disgusting. You know, people were starving, and he... I hate him so much. So, one
0: time, apparently, this asshole chased down a cab driver in a street in Cambridge with a shotgun, because he thought that he had been cheated by the driver For 10 cents. He's just the worst. He's I mean,
3: he's such an asshole. The worst.
0: So it's literally everything negative that a rich, privileged kid could be. He was all of that. But at least at Harvard, he finally had to suffer some consequences for the first time. He was expelled for threatening teachers and students, and they only gave him three hours to pack up his shit and get (laughs) out. Yay, Harvard. Now, William Thaw, Sr. thought that he had somehow, he had to try to put some sense into this horrible son of his. So you're going to love this. So he limits his monthly allowance to $2500. So the average annual income of the average worker back then, annual income was $500. So it's no surprise that his very difficult $2500 a month budget really didn't teach Harry a lesson. This is
2: it's who are these people? <laughs> And I'm sure he didn't even have to pay rent or or utilities. That was just for lighting cigars. Yeah. Oh, Jesus.
0: Mary and Joseph, as my mother would say. Yeah, he just, he was the worst. So he did also become a regular drug user after he was expelled from Harvard. He used cocaine, morphine, and laudanum often. And apparently one time he drank an entire bottle of laudanum in one swallow
2: and lit did you yeah unfortunately did you also read that he liked to do speedballs oh just like john belushi so he would mix <laughs> the the cocaine and the heroin yeah oh man i do
0: wonder though i really do suspect that he had uh, maybe undiagnosed bipolar as well as being antisocial like, he
3: had definitely some some mental issues yeah I wonder if some of the drugs was trying to even out the swings but
0: but it doesn't excuse yeah. anything that he did at all.
2: No, it's not an excuse for being such a horrible person. No. No, he was a horrible. And he enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, mental illness can happen to anyone and sometimes those people were horrible people to begin with.
3: <laughs> like yeah, this guy. Exactly.
0: So, when his father dies, so uh, Thaw Sr. dies in 1893, he leaves his then 22-year-old son, Harry, with three million dollars. yeah. But if that's not enough, his mother also increased his monthly allowance to eight grand a month.
2: It's like, oh, my my poor baby, now you had to suffer for years with your merely $2,500. Here, take. Eight grand a
0: month in... 1893 hang on cuz i forgot to i wanted to look this up and just see out of curiosity 8 grand a month in 1893 would have been holy shit that can't be right wait okay so 8 $8000 in 1893 would be 225720 dollars and 38 cents in 2018 what so he got $3 million, and then on top of that, monthly, another quarter of a million dollars. And then, just out of curiosity, I'm going to put in the $3 million just to see. All right, so $3 million would have been $84,645,143.42. That's obscene.
2: That's just obscene.
3: That's obscene, literally.
0: Obscene amount of money. Thanks for coming on that journey with us, friends. We had to figure that out. But that's nuts. I mean, that is, that's bonkers money.
3: Yeah, it also became
0: common practice for the Thaw family to spend loads of money as payoffs to shield the family name from any scandal. So they could, they could afford it. Why not? For example, one time when in London, Harry lured a bellboy into his suite and then restrained him in the bathtub naked. And beat him with a riding whip. It's lovely.
2: This man, I hate him so much. I know. Really, he makes me so sick. Like I read that he could be super charming and and caring whenever it was needed. So that's true sociopathic behavior right there. Because he was like calculating. Also. Fun fact, apparently the term playboy was inspired by Harry Kendall Thor.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he was just absolutely the epitome of antisocial personality. And he was sadistic. It's very disturbing. He really had a thing for whipping people. People who didn't also want to get whipped. It's an important distinction, right? I mean, people are into that. And if that's your jam, go for it. But that's not the case here.
2: <laughs> I think he he wouldn't want to whip people who would want no, to be whipped. No, that's
0: exactly right. He liked to call it. had to be fear and pain. Yeah, for him to get off. So, ugh. Anyhow. So, yeah, he also, Harry, he really hated Stanford White. Harry had started to spend quite a lot of time in New York, and he was trying to become a member in some of the most prestigious men's clubs. So, like, the Metropolitan Club, the Knickerbocker Club, the Players Club, all of them refused to accept him as a member. Only the Union League club took him in, but they soon after revoked his membership because of the, quote, behavior unfit of a gentleman. Apparently, he'd been riding a horse into the club's entrance. I don't, whatever reason it was, Thaw blamed Stanley White for not being accepted into the city's inner circles. Like, don't take any accountability for your own actions. It's always someone else's fault. So, his hatred for Stanford White might have been sparked by one special incident a showgirl who had been treated very badly by harry took some revenge one night by sabotaging one of his lavish parties she basically hijacked all of the invited female guests and took them over to one of white's parties instead (laughs) actually sounds like something i would do but unfortunately after this incident harry started to become just completely obsessed by this hatred for stanford white it's it's over the top
2: yeah Yeah, Yeah, and this hatred might have been the reason why Thor started to take an interest in Evelyn Nesbitt, because he had attended the play The Wild Rose. You remember the play that John Barrymore watched 12 times? Well, he
3: went and watched it at least 40 times. I'm just imagining the two of them sitting together at
0: It's, she's This poor woman is basically on stage performing for a bunch of stalkers we now know, super.
2: Yeah, and finally he could arrange a meeting with her and he introduced himself as Mr. Monroe. And he kept his fake identity up for a while. He was showering Evelyn with gifts until one day he finally felt now it's time that he had to reveal his true identity. And I'm sure he was like, I'm Harry K. Thor from Pittsburgh and he was expecting her to faint or like to be all
3: swoony or yeah like I love the big reveal it's like who great (laughs) Harry K. Thor of Pittsburgh
2: (laughs) and of course when Stanford White heard that you know Thor was like kind of a stalker for her he warned Evelyn to stay away from from him but he didn't tell her any specifics as to why she should not meet him maybe she just thought yeah he was like
3: being jealous or you know controlling like with john barrymore before sure sure and it's not like she had any reason to particularly trust stanford white right it's not like he had always been looking
0: out for her best interests so and i can see that because i just think i think that she must have also had to deal with that a lot the jealous and controlling bit i mean Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that she wasn't smart but she was somebody that people wanted because of the way she looked right and
3: that's an awful thing.
0: It's sad, isn't it? Just to think that that's the only reason people would want you. Yeah. But none of them were actually people you could trust ever, ever.
3: It was a tragedy that
2: her father died so early because he tried to, yeah, you know, yep. push her in different directions away from just the, the outer appearance. Well, anyway, around that time, Evelyn had suffered from appendicitis and she had to undergo an emergency surgery. Although, to this day, there are rumors that, in fact, she was pregnant from John Barrymore, and she had gone to get an abortion. But Evelyn and and John Barrymore denied this all through their life. What do you think? I can see it. Yeah, I can actually see it because she spent the nights by accident. They fell asleep. They said, "Yeah, at John Barrymore." Yeah,
3: wake up, little Susie situation.
2: Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. And I yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm not judging.
2: No, I could also see why they would cover that up because people are judgy. Oh people God. were judgy back then. Like, the people
3: are judgy today, yeah. never mind back then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Look, we don't know. Let's she said it was
2: an emergency surgery. Let's believe it was an emergency surgery. So
3: and here's where Harry's quote
2: unquote caring side comes into play because he convinced Evelyn and her mother that a trip to Europe would be just what Evelyn now needed to recover from the surgery. Of course, this trip was not even close to a pleasant and relaxing journey because Harry's style of traveling was so stressful. Days full of activities weakened Evelyn further and it stressed out Mrs. Nesbitt a lot and she started to bicker and complain the whole time. And Harry used this to his advantage because he managed to alienate mother and daughter which led to them leaving Mrs. Nesbitt in London while the two of them continued the journey to Paris. Nice. So there in Paris... Thor proposed to Evelyn and she refused. And one of the reasons she refused was because she knew that it was very important to him to marry a virgin. He had said so several times. And she was just... Being honest. Yeah, she had like this honest, sweet personality. So she disclosed her relationship to Stanford White to its full extent. And that was a huge mistake. Because what followed was later described by Evelyn as hours and hours of interrogations and Harry managed to get every detail about her relationship to Stanford White and Evelyn told him everything, you know, about the champagne, about falling unconscious, about waking up the next morning and naked in bed with Stanford White. And Thor continued to drive a wedge between mother and daughter even further because he blamed Mrs. Nesbitt for what had happened and he called her an unfit parent. After this event, Thor and Evelyn continued to travel through Europe and he even took her and that's (laughs) that shows how Obsessed he is. He took her to Dom Remy, the, the birthplace of Joan of Arc. I mean she's seen as the virgin martyr. So I don't know, maybe he took her there for some penance or <laughs> and he even left a note in the visitors' books there, quote, <laughs> I love that part, quote, she wouldn't have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around. End
3: quote. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ, obsessed much buddy? Wow. It's a little bit funny. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) still,
0: in a guest book. Come on. I'm going to start writing much more interesting notes in guest books.
2: Okay. And after that, and now comes... uh, After that, he took her to Burg Katzenstein in Südtirol, which back then was still part of Austria. And here is where it gets even more fucked up. He started to beat her with a whip and he assaulted her sexually. And this whole ordeal lasted two weeks and then... He just stopped. And when he finally stopped, he simply apologized. But he was in a very upbeat mood and, yeah, apparently very pleased with the events of the past weeks.
0: I mean, can you even imagine? And worse, she just seemed to take all of this in stride. Like, that's just what happens, you know? And she wasn't wrong. I mean, this kind of thing did and does still happen to women. And it's horrific that women would ever grow up to expect this kind of abuse, rant over. But it just... Who could she turn to? Well, no one really no one. So after they returned to the United States, Harry Kendall Thaw pursued Evelyn for over four years, constantly asking her to marry him. After locking her up, whipping her, and raping her for two weeks, he's still like, marry me, marry me. Although she kept refusing his proposals, she did long for stability in life. So finally, in 1905, she apparently just got tired of saying no, and the two of them got married, which... I just I hate it so much, right? I hate the idea of not accepting a no so much, and I hate that he was successful with his hang in there behavior. Mm -hmm. It's it's like no means no, just no, go away, don't do it. If they don't want you, move on. Someone else will. I mean, we're talking like these people are rational and they're not. So like you said, Evelyn had nobody. Her mother was now remarried and pretty much out of her life. And Evelyn was really afraid of ending up just completely broken alone. Her reputation was deeply damaged by the affair with Stanford White. And so I guess those were the reasons for her to agree to marry this just horrific human being, which it really makes you sad now, right? Thinking about John Barrymore's proposal. Yeah. Even at their wedding, Thaw showed what a really sadistic asshole he was. He denied her the possibility of wearing a white wedding dress. And instead, he made her wear a black traveling suit at her wedding, which probably my Catholic mother would agree with. But still, I do not. I think she had a right to wear her white dress. They got married, and they moved to the Saw family estate near Pittsburgh. Now, Evelyn, who had maybe envisioned a comfortable life with a busy social calendar and lots of traveling, was quick to realize that her days were from now on controlled by her new mother-in-law. That's fun. Harry's mom. And also, right around that time, Harry took his personal vendetta against Stanford White to a new level. He was determined to expose his lewd morals and the things that were going on in his apartment. He even started to correspond with the anti-vice activist Anthony Comstock. And because of these actions, Harry started to be convinced that Stanford was after his life and that he was being stalked and threatened by gang members hired by Stanford White himself. And that's the reason that Harry started to carry a gun with him everywhere he went.
2: Yeah, funny thing though. So Stanford White really didn't like Harry Kendall though He thought of him like as a clown, and he called him the Pennsylvania Puck because of his, like, very boyish face, but he was absolutely unaware that Thor was out on a crusade against him. So yeah, we can say that Thor pretty much was paranoid. That's a bummer, because now this story will reach its absolutely dramatic climax. On June 25th, 1906, Evelyn and Harry were visiting New York City because they were bound to leave on a luxury ship to Europe. And that day, Thor had been in and out of the hotel suite, saying he had last-minute errands to run before the voyage. When he finally returned to the hotel, he told Evelyn that he had purchased tickets to see the new show *Mamselle Champagne for himself, his wife and two of his very close friends. The play took place in the rooftop theater of the Madison Square Garden. Now, this was the second Madison Square Garden and was built in 1890, you know, as an indoor arena that replaced the original Madison Square Garden and, you know, held events like boxing matches, operas, Barnum Circus was there. You get the gist. Not any different from today's Madison Square Garden, which is already version number four, by the way. So now, please take one wild guess who had designed the second Madison Square Garden. That's right stanford white and it was one of his most famous buildings too the top of the building was decorated by a golden statue of diana the roman goddess of hunting birth and the moon and she was in the nude huge scandal like i read in a book that they had to cover up with some fabric because people were so shocked especially our buddy there anthony comstock like he you know he got his panties in a twist it's so stupid that they tried to cover up first of all that building was tall it was with the statue of diana it was the tallest building in new york so who even looks up and
3: sees her it was like a weather vane
2: yeah it was like a weather vane, and they put a fabric over her but the fabric was blown away by the wind because obviously it was high up there it's like it makes no sense i love it i love it (laughs)
0: cromstock and his crusade to just end all the vice in new york like get rid of everything that makes it fun (laughs) <laughs> and then um, that statue is now actually at the Museum of Art in Philadelphia. Mm. So if you go there, you can see the uh, the scandalous uh, weather vane of Diana.
2: Yeah, you see the she survived Comstock. We digress. So Thor, Evelyn, two friends, they go to see the play at the rooftop of the Madison Square Garden. And it's June and it's an insanely hot day. Like the heat was unbearable. And it didn't really cool down in the evening neither. But despite the heat, Harry was wearing a long black coat over his tuxedo and he refused to take it off the whole evening. Hmm, Comfortable. At 11pm, the show comes to an end and that's when Stanford White appears and takes place at the table that was always reserved for him. I guess designing a building gives you this kind of privilege. And when Thor sees that White has arrived, he leaves his own table, trying to approach Stanford several times, but each time drawing back again in hesitation. But then, during the final song of the show, called I Could Love a Million Girls, he pulls out a gun, points it at Stanford, who is only a few feet away, and shoots him. Three times. Stanford White is killed immediately. Harry lifts the gun in the air, proclaiming, quote, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her, End quote. But I have to say there's also the chance that he said he ruined my life instead of he ruined my wife. Uh, Honestly, I think it's probably
0: 50-50, and in his mind, it's probably one and the same.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's funny. At first, I guess think that's some kind of practical joke, because apparently it was kind of a thing to do that back then. But pretty soon, they realized that White was indeed dead. I mean, people, parts of his face were blown away. Yeah, yeah. He was
0: dead 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 two shots in the head and I think one in the shoulder or so funny thing that I had read was like the musical paused briefly and then they just kept on going they didn't really like I think they thought it was a joke or just a, they didn't realize what had happened so like the band kept going and then and then I think women started screaming and fainting and then finally they were like oh no this really happened like everybody proceed out in a calm fashion please and so, yeah, so then there, So then, Thaw walks calmly through the crowd, still holding the gun over his head, to meet Evelyn at the elevator. And when she asks what he had done, he replied, it's all right, I probably saved your life. What? Okay.
2: Of course, Thaw is charged with first degree murder and surprisingly, he's denied bail. I say surprisingly because, I mean, he got away with pretty much everything before that, you know? Yeah, but don't worry. The guy was treated like a king in prison. We have a photo that shows him in his cell eating food served from Delmonicos. Fucking Delmonicos appears so often in this story. <laughs> you can also see a very nice breast bed in the background of the cell. And he's sitting there with super nice clothes, like with a tie and everything. Oh, yeah. And apparently, that that's also funny, the prison doctor prescribed him a daily dose of wine and champagne. Apparently, he needed that. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor said, you need to drink champagne and wine daily. Like... During the time in prison, he was in a really good mood.
0: Oh yeah, I could see why he would be. So my next planned procedure with anesthesia is in early November, and I'm afraid I'm going to give everyone a hard time about my comparative treatment once they give me the good drugs.
2: And of course, the media was all over this case. Even Thomas Edison, he produced a rushed film version of the events called Rooftop Murder, and that was released only one week after the murder.
0: Yeah, what followed was, called by the media, the trial of the century.
2: Mm, Yep, yep, yep. Followed by the trial of the century, Leopold and Loeb. Followed by the trial of the century, Bruno Richard Hauptmann. I mean, maybe they should think of a different headline once in a while. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think we just have to make sure that we've covered all the trials of the century. We'll just be here. We'll never run out of material, right? (laughs)
2: That's
3: true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, in the end, Henry was tried twice for the murder of Stanford White. So the star witness in both trials was, of course, Evelyn herself. And it's rumored that the Thaw family had promised Evelyn a very comfortable sum of money if she took the stand and gave testimony in Harry's favor. And I think we both agree that that happened, yeah?
3: Yeah, I think they, they definitely offered her money, yeah. Yeah, but that if the trial
0: ended badly, she would get nothing.
2: Yeah, no pressure there. Again, so fucked up by them, like
3: seriously. Like it would be her fault. Yeah, exactly. And they're still married. Uh, Yep, and they're still married.
2: Yeah, okay, so uh, Harry's family doesn't support her, but Evelyn's own family, you might ask, did they at least offer her some emotional support?
0: Nope, far from it. So Mrs. Nesbitt remained absent, but she still cooperated with the prosecution. And Evelyn's brother, Howard, He blamed Evelyn for the death of the man that he had seen as a father figure, which I guess I can kind of understand his feelings. I think that if he knew the whole story, he might have felt differently about that.
2: Yeah, but didn't he already then? I mean, during the trial, the whole story came out, didn't it? It did. And he still blamed her. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but also Howard Nesbitt, he also had a very tragic life, right?
0: Yeah, I think he went on to die by suicide when he was still pretty young. Wasn't he like in his 40s? It was
2: 1928 he was, uh, yeah, he was in his 40s. Sad. He hung himself. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's just awful because he didn't have anyone like, you know, either. And so the whole thing just, it's so sad. So... Yeah, and you're right. When Evelyn gave her testimony, she had to disclose everything about her relationship with Stanford White, even the rape that had occurred that night in White's apartment. Until then, the only people who had known about that were herself, Stanford, and Harry. I can't imagine how hard this was for her. So the first trial that lasted from 23rd of January, 1907 until April 11th, 1907, this was the first time in American history that jury members were ordered to be sequestered. So after 47 hours of deliberation, the jury could not come to a verdict. Seven jurors had voted guilty while five had deemed him not guilty. So during his second trial, Fa pleaded temporary insanity. Now, This was a really clever calculation, the temporary insanity thing, because he really didn't, he wanted to plead insanity to get out of the charges, but at the same time, he didn't want anyone to think he was actually insane.
3: Because he wanted people to see him as as a hero. As a hero, exactly. Yep. So,
0: amazingly, Fowl was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity, but he was sentenced to be involuntarily committed to the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, for life, of course. Thaw did not enjoy, shockingly, being locked <laughs> up in the asylum. I mean, so uh, in 1913, he simply strolls off the asylum grounds, and he entered a prearranged vehicle that his mommy had probably sorted out for him.
2: I think they paid off the guards. You think? Now that I think about it, oh, I'm sure yeah. his mom
0: paid off every. But I think his mom was behind it all, don't you?
2: Yeah, yeah. And she paid off the guards on duty that day, so they just, you know, turned around and didn't see. What's happening? Something like that. Because otherwise, that wouldn't happen. I hope.
0: Yeah, I would hope the same. So he's driven over the Canadian border. And after his escape, Evelyn, who had fucking had it, said in an interview, quote, He hid behind my skirts through two trials, and I won't stand for it again. I won't let lawyers throw any more mud at me, end
3: quote. Good for her. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so in December 1914, he was extradited back to the United States, where he was able to secure yet another trial to establish whether or not he truly was insane. And on July 16th, 1915, the jury determined that uh, he was in fact not insane, and he was set
3: free. Like, can you actually... Believe this. No, it's awful. He was a complete psychopath.
2: And I truly would wish that this would be the last we can say about Harry Kendall Thor of Pittsburgh, but unfortunately... It's not. Because in 1916 he was charged with kidnapping, beating and sexual assault of 19-year-old Frederick Gump. Now, apparently Thor had worked quite for a while to gain the trust of Frederick's family and he convinced them that the boy should come to New York where he would get him enrolled at the Carnegie Institute. So Frederick arrived at the hotel suite and Thor was waiting there for him, armed with a whip, and he started his assault. After the assault, uh, Harry Thor fled to Philadelphia, where he was found with a slashed throat and attempted suicide, uh. which is
0: yeah horrible.
2: But, uh, yeah, and of course, Mama Thor tried to bribe the Gum family with half a million dollars if they would drop all charges against her son. But thank God, Thor was arrested, tried, and sentenced to confinement at the Kirkbride Asylum in Philadelphia. Alas, he was deemed sane. And regained his freedom again in nineteen twenty four. Why? Why? Oh, uh,
0: did you see how they think that Gump was chosen because he looked a little bit like Evelyn?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that somewhere. Yeah, I've got a picture to post. Yeah, I don't think I saw a photo of him though. Yeah, yeah, they're both just sketches, so it's like artists rendering, but it yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so after that he moved
0: to Clearbrook, Virginia.
3: That's like a farming community little little
2: town and he Is even it? worked as a, a yeah he was an honor, honorary firefighter or something like that and in the parades he every year he walked with the firefighters in his uniform no. Just so so bizarre no that's incredibly
0: strange but he didn't run into any other legal problems right
2: well not that we know of yeah
0: so he either changed his ways or he kept his habit of simply paying off people and buying their silence uh he did write a book though called the traitor <laughs> and apparently he did not regret anything. He said, quote, under the same circumstances, I'd kill him tomorrow. And <laughs> quote. So that's pretty fucking clear. No regrets. Not even one. In 1944, Harry leaves Virginia and he moves to Florida, where he died on, thank God, on the 22nd of February, 1947, at the age of 76, from a heart attack. He left a fortune of $1 million, which would be around $11 million today. And in his will, he left Evelyn $10,000, which would be around $112,000. So, what a cheap bastard.
3: Yeah, but on the other hand, they were divorced already. He had nothing to do with her anymore. No, that's true. But still...
2: And of course, we also want to know what uh, life had in store for Evelyn. Well, on 25th of October, 1910, Evelyn gave birth in Berlin to her son, Russell William Thor. And she kept insisting that he was conceived during a conjugal visit while Harry had been confined at Meadowan, but Thor denied paternity for the rest of his life. I, what do you think, Annie?
0: See, this is it. This is why I think him not leaving her more money was such a dick move, because I don't know who else. I think it was probably
2: his kid. Me personally, I don't think it was his kid. No. But they were still married in 1910. So obviously she would say it's his kid. And I mean, but then maybe she said it's his kid because at least then the son could could be heir to
3: the whole thaw of Pittsburgh money. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which
2: would be a, a smart move. But do you really think she went in 1909, 1910 and... For a conjugal visit
3: with her husband, I don't think so. How controlling was he of her, though?
0: I don't know. I could see it going either way, honestly.
3: That's true, yeah. Well, she said it was his son. Let's see. It
2: was his son. Evelyn now was forced once more to fend for herself and she actually reconciled with her mother in 1911. Uh, Mrs. Nesbitt then took Russell in so Evelyn could try to work and make a living for herself and her son. She continued to work as a singer and as an actress and she appeared in several movies one of them was called Redemption and that one was based very loosely on her own life story. Fun fact, again, her son Russell appeared with her in at least six movies, I think. In 1915, she finally divorced Harry Candlethor of Pittsburgh and she remarried in 1916. Her second husband was the dancer Jack Clifford, who she met while she was working on stage together with him. But her second marriage wasn't able to survive her past because the audience didn't let her forget about the murder and Basically, they only came to see the lethal beauty on stage. And also her husband, he really didn't like that people would
3: refer to him as Mr. Evelyn Nesbitt, like she was the more famous one of the two of them. So sad when men are that kind of weak, you know, that's such a specific
0: weakness. But she really was. She was sort of a modern day Helen of Troy.
2: And they pretty much, I mean, they blamed her for so many things. Yeah. Like she was this seductive femme fatale. She She was a girl. She was a child. That all happened to a a child, exactly, to a child. Jack Clifford, he couldn't handle that and he left her in 1918 and she finally divorced him in 1933. From the 1920s well into the 1930s, she... She had a rough life, like she struggled. She struggled with alcoholism and she struggled with drug abuse. And in 1926, she had tried to commit suicide by drinking disinfectant and she was hospitalized in Chicago. Here's an interesting thing, because when Harry heard of this, he went to Chicago to see his ex-wife because he had still kept Evelyn under surveillance, at least until the 30s. And he had sent her $10 per day. as as he called it, token of pleasant memories of the past when we were happy. Evelyn also published two books, two autobiographies. One is called The Story of My Life, and it was published in 1914, and Prodigal Days, that was published in 1934. Later, she moved to California, where she spent her days teaching ceramics and sculpting at the Grand Beach School of Arts and Crafts, and I kind of liked it. I I like the thought of that. Yeah, that's a good life. Yeah. She was also the technical advisor on the 1955 movie Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. She earned $10,000, I think, on that. I read that.
0: Okay, so she earned about as much as her husband left her and allegedly his son (laughs) when he died, leaving a huge fortune.
2: I mean, I don't know if if his son didn't inherit more, because officially he was his son, even if he might have not been. So Evelyn Nesbitt died in a nursing home in Santa Monica on 17th January 1967, and she
3: was probably 82 years old. She might have been 63, who can say? We don't know. uh, Who knows?
2: So yeah, this was the very sad and very infuriating story of Evelyn Nesbitt. I think most grown-ups around her acted really horrible.
0: Yeah. I agree. I agree. Oh, and also, did you see, so the widow of Stanford White, so after he was murdered, his widow wasn't left in the best shape financially, and she had a really hard life. And then her brother would also die when he
3: was a passenger on the Titanic. So You see, but that, that that's one thing that I don't understand that she she wasn't left with a lot of money because she had a lot of money. Her family came from money
0: too. I know. I just read that she had a hard time financially. But listen, what does that mean specifically, right? So like yeah, you true. lived yeah. in the breakers as your summer home and do you know what I mean? And then you had an even grander home that was your year round home, and then a place here and a place there. And then things got really hard and you only had the one mansion and the ten servants. I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing is just so sad. I just, it's really hard to even imagine how much she went through in her
3: life.
2: Listen, if you're interested to learn more, I can recommend the books Architect of Desire by Susanna Lazard, which I think, if I remember correctly, is his, is Stanford White's granddaughter or great-granddaughter. Please don't quote me on that. I i, I read that book years ago, yeah. And American Eve by Paula Muruburu, yeah. Uh, it's also a great book. I read that too as well, of course. Evidence autobiographies.
3: I see. I'd recommend these four books. Nice, nice. So speaking of good things to recommend, do you have anything good this week?
2: Okay, so this was an episode that had a lot to do with beauty and beauty standards and things that people do for beauty. So my something good this week has something to do with beauty, and that's my new and improved skincare, which doesn't sound exciting, but hear me out. Okay, basically, I had no skincare at all. Like, you know, how in your 20s, you just wash your face and sometimes... You throw on some moisturizer, things like that. A few months ago, I woke up in the morning. As often, I had like this pillow folds imprinted on my face. You know, happens to all of us, I think. <laughs> yep. The only problem is I went out to walk the dogs and then I came back home two hours later and I looked in the mirror and the fucking pillow prints were still in my face like two hours later. My face was that dehydrated and thirsty. So I thought, okay, it's time to change my skincare routine and my skin is so problematic, like I have sometimes this hormonal acne, like cystic acne, like oh, ugh, yeah. and my skin is oily and dry at the same time, and super super sensitive, like all the great things that your skin <laughs> could have i I have it like yeah, all at yeah. the same time, I don't know, yeah, all at the same time, perfect, yeah. <laughs> And you know, of course, with with the with the pimples come the the hyperpigmentation and all the mm. yeah, <laughs> great. So okay, I thought yeah, I'm forty now. I need to take care of my skin. I have to find things to improve my skin. And I got in this whole kind of Korean skincare. So I'm have like this ten step Korean skincare program that I, I'm I'm very obsessed with my skin right now, and it's working because people already asked me what I did because I look kind of glowy. And it's amazing. It's good for your confidence, you know, because it's especially if it's your face. Uh, Yeah, I love
0: facials. And um, I'm like you, I have a ton of pigmentation. Mine's mostly from meds and then lost collagen from years of high dose prednisone because it destroys all the collagen in your skin. Um, But my something good is my sister Moose is visiting this week. Hi, Moose. Hi, Moose. She's in the other room being very quiet and bringing me things like water today. And, uh, I think we're going to try to go get facials one day this week, which I just, Oh, I desperately need. And, and I think we're both going to try to get our hair done. I, I've just honestly been too ill to get to the salon to have my hair colored. And then I was like, Oh, I think I'm getting a streak, like a Stacey London kind of white streak. Cause there's this patch in the front that really looked like it might be a cool streak of gray. Um, but it's not, it's, it's very patchy and it's very like drunk skunk kind of situation. So I think I'm going to keep dying until I get, I need more gray, right? I'm not there yet. It's like, I just have enough gray to make my hair look kind of dull. We'll probably go visit somewhere wherever she feels like driving. Cause I probably won't feel up to driving. So wherever she wants to drive to, we'll do a little road trip to Rockport or Gloucester or something. Awesome. Yeah. So, so thanks so much for joining us again. If you could please, if you enjoyed it, please
2: rate and review. Uh, join our Facebook group because it's really fun. We have Mugshot Friday. It's called Fresh Hell Podcast, Murder, Mystery and the Macabre. Don't confuse it with the mummy Mummy group.
0: Yeah, you're not going to find as much murder there. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so yeah, come say hi on Instagram. And Johanna, you're tweeting.
2: We're tweeting, yes. Yeah, we are tweeting. Yeah.
0: I'm occasionally tweeting. You're better at it than me.
2: We're her. still getting the hang of it, but it's fun. So that's Fresh Help Pod. Send us a message.
0: Send, yeah, you send us a message through Twitter or our email is freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please tell your dogs we said hi.
3: Yes, we know that your cats don't care. They don't. They don't care at all. So, uh, yeah,
0: we'll see you all next week. And until then, if you are going through hell, keep going. Choose. Bye.